This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Is speech the major underlying issue in several of the recent Supreme Court's decisions? Today I'm joined by Kate Shaw, a professor of law and the co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at Cardozo School of Law in New York City. Before joining Cardozo, Professor Shaw worked in the White House Counsel's Office as a special assistant to the president and associate counsel to the president. She's also clerked at the Supreme Court and for Judge Richard Posner of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. I joined her in her office at Cardozo in New York City. All right, great. So welcome. I'm really excited today. I'm actually sitting at Cardozo Law School and speaking with Professor Kate Shaw, which is wonderful. Thank you, Kate, for making time. It's a busy week. A few uh, things yeah, happening yeah. in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Few, few things yeah. happening in your bailiwick, exactly. Yeah. You're a yeah. professor of law, associate professor of law, and the co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy here at Cardozo. You've worked both in the White House, mm -hmm. in the Obama White House, and you've worked in the Supreme Court being a clerk for one of our justices, uh, John Paul Stevens. So you've had experience in the White House, where speech is really um, intensified and politicized mm -hmm. and reaches millions of people. You've worked in the Supreme Court, where people adjudicate how speech actually functions and ought to function in our mm -hmm. society and to keep it as free as possible. And then this week, today, where we're recording, yesterday, Justice Kennedy announced his retirement. There were a couple of rulings in the last couple of weeks that touch on speech, which is kind of interesting. So the Masterpiece Bake Shop mm -hmm. case touches on speech, on religious freedom, which mm -hmm. is part of the First Amendment. The travel ban case touches on speech, on President Trump's, you know, his own speech, which you've talked about so eloquently and I think really kind of patiently that you've actually tried to understand what is the nature of that speech rather than just what's the content of each single tweet. In Citizens United, of course, which has informed our federal system now, speech is equated with con campaign contributions. And then this most recent case, which is Janus, the union case, there's actually two more cases. The Janus case, which is where employees cannot be compelled to pay agency fees to unions because it would be compelling them to support speech they don't agree with, let's say the union's message that they're not members of. 
And then the abortion clinics in California where faith-based abortion centers cannot be compelled by the state to say things that they don't agree with, which is to give counseling on abortions. So speech sits in the center of all this. I don't, we won't have time to, I'd love to take a whole class with you to <laughs> parse all of these. But it's, I'm more interested, speech seems to be a thing that is supposed to set us free, empower us, make us into citizens who can participate in democracy. And then it shows up in these cases that are incredibly disappointing to some people, to the point of infuriating and feel completely unjust and wrong and bad law. And also, on the other hand, they are celebrated by people to say, this is actually our freedom to be ourselves. When you approach a law class and when you sort of approach this large topic, and it's, as I'm trying to show, as you can show me much better, it cuts across so many areas. So there's a lot in that question, and and you're right. Just the last, you know, you mentioned a few older cases, but most of what you just the recited was the Citi last week or two, Citizens right? United, Citizens, everything yeah. else is in the last everything couple, couple of weeks. weeks. And there's definitely a through line in terms of the cases that you have identified. So whether we're talking about objections that are, you know, sort of religious, sort of religiously inflected, but just to kind of first, you know, cast primarily as speech as opposed to religion clause objections, to you know, posting notices that provide truthful information about available services in the state of California, or talking about complying with, you know, neutral anti-discrimination laws, or we're talking about paying what are called agency fees, right, to sort of help subsidize the cost of collective bargaining. In each of these cases, just in the last few weeks, you've seen this kind of weaponized version of the First Amendment mm -hmm. successfully used to either carve out exemptions from or to wholesale invalidate these, you know, broadly applicable neutral laws. Um, so, so that's, you know, I'm not the sort of first person to identify this, but there's absolutely a trend in terms of very effective kind of conservative mobilization around using the First Amendment as a sword, right, sort of to weaponize the First Amendment to sort of invalidate kind of regulations in a range of areas. And I would actually throw another case into the mix just in terms of the big opinions the court has handed down recently. And it's kind of an interesting contrast with some of the cases that we're beginning to talk about now. And that is the court's failure to resolve these partisan gerrymandering cases yeah. because there's a First Amendment angle there too, right? So for many, many years, the court has been struggling to find some principle that explains and maybe uh, in, or, or I guess I should say, to find some principle that identifies the line between the permissible use of politics in some parts of the democratic process, and here, you know, the drawing of legislative districts, and excessive partisanship in, you know, this kind of important mechanical or logistical dimension of democracy. So where the government is not supposed to tip the scales either way, in either direction. Do well, it, it does. So, yeah. you know, yes, that's, it, there is an intuition that the government shouldn't do that. Should be neutral in these things. Should be, what. should, I mean, so, so, you know, Justice Stevens, for whom I clerked, right, has long held that there is this independent obligation in the Constitution to govern impartially, right, that that's pretty basic. But, and, you know, I think that some justices do and some don't agree with that general intuition. But if there is such a general obligation in the Constitution, in order to adjudicate cases that are predicated on that principle, there needs to be kind of a hook. Something in the Constitution has to give rise to that kind of right. obligation. Right. And the justices just haven't been able to agree on what the source of that obligation, even if it exists, be. So, so you've had the court in a series of cases, essentially a bare majority of the court has decided that these cases, these challenges to, you know, clearly politically motivated maps that really advantage or disadvantage, you know, one political party, the court has, again, by a bare majority, agreed that these are justiciable cases. Courts can resolve them. They're not, they don't present political questions that are totally off limits for courts to decide. But 
you know, what the actual constitutional violation might be if there is excessive partisanship is not something you've been able to get five, five votes for. So you're for. kind of saying it's not written in the Constitution yeah. clearly and self-evidently no. say there has to be this neutrality. They're it, saying we have to find a way, to, actually. Yeah. And maybe it's not in there at all, or at least there's not a principle that is judicially enforceable at all. But probably the leading candidate for a principle that might explain why it is impermissible, you know, to use politics at all or to use politics excessively right. in drawing legislative districts is the First Amendment, right? So there's, you know, equal protection and the First Amendment are kind of the two candidates. And there was a case out of Wisconsin that was litigated primarily on an equal protection theory and one successfully had a lower court strike down this map. This map had translated, you know, state, so the Republicans had something like 48% of the population, right? You know, was, re was registered Republican, 48%. And because of the way the maps were drawn, they were able to translate that 48% vote share into like a 60% share in terms of controlling the state right. house. And so you can see there, there's a disconnect, right? There's not actually, the population's preferences are not reflected in its representative elected bodies. And so lower court struck that map down you know, on this sort of complicated equal protection theory, and the court and equal protection here meaning for a regular citizen. What does that mean, actually? Then, essentially, by drawing maps that dilute your vote, that basically right. make it impossible for you to band together with your fellow citizens to, right. in a fair way, elect the representative so it of your choosing. this political playing field in a way that your vote doesn't quite count in the same way as a vote next to you exactly. or to the other people. Yeah. So, there, so it violates their kind of this idea of fundamental yeah. political equality. All of our votes should right. be equally weighted. Right. And there is such an obligation in the Constitution when it comes to population equality. So that the court is willing to enforce, this kind of idea of one person, one vote. So the court has said right. legislatures can't draw districts that have 10 people in one and 100 people in another or 1,000 people in another. So that they have said, and once upon a time they said those are also off limits for judicial intervention. So there's been kind of a revolution even in courts getting involved in those kinds of cases. But what the court hasn't done is, is essentially done the same thing in terms of policing the political process when it comes to partisanship and so district if it, drawing. So the equal protection clause is used in the first case, what in the most recent case? What is the logic or the, the thinking in the most recent case? Well, so that one is equal protection clause um, is the sort of the basis of the successfully litigated case below, which the Supreme Court essentially kicks on standing grounds as well. The plaintiffs that you brought didn't really show the right kind of harm, so they send the case back down. But there was another case that was out of Maryland, and that was really brought as a First Amendment claim. And basically, the way the plaintiffs explained the case, the, like sort of articulated their First Amendment theory, was they were being retaliated against. So these were actually Republican voters with a Democratic legislature. It was the reverse in Wisconsin. But so these voters said, basically, when the Democrats in control of the state legislature drew the map, they were kind of punishing us for being Republicans and trying to minimize our voting power. And that's about, you know, a First Amendment associational rights. And so it's a First Amendment claim. And in that case, the court kind of dodged too. It didn't really say it was a standing problem, but said that claim had lost below. And the court said, well, you know, this wasn't so terribly wrong that we should intervene at this kind of early stage of the litigation, so they sent it back down. But there's a concurrence in the Wisconsin case by Justice Kagan that basically says, bring this case back to us as a First Amendment case, because actually that's a better, that's a more viable theory. And I think she meant differently from the Maryland, you know, retaliation kind of a First Amendment claim. But anyway, that's a long explanation, but it's an interesting, I think it's interesting to show that it actually is the case right now that the court takes extremely seriously the First Amendment in all these other spheres that right. we don't think about as implicating these kind of core political That's right. rights. That's right. And here, where you actually have these kind of First Amendment 
at least in one of the cases, a First Amendment claim. You know, the other one is First Amendment kind of inflected, but it's more about equality and political equality. The courts were saying, no, we're not really going to intervene, let alone enforce this really kind of robust vision of the First Amendment. So you do have, you know, you have this kind of disparity that it feels like is you know, maybe growing between the First Amendment as at its most kind of basic core really about political participation and, you know, political equality. That's about the First Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause probably. So maybe we're seeing a diminished First Amendment in that realm and an increasingly muscular First Amendment when it comes to all of these other categories of expressive activity. That's interesting. And the, and the other categories and the court, I think people who are not in the legal profession and are just watching the court from a distance and don't have the time to read every SCOTUS decision think donating money is speech baking a cake is speech. What the president says about religious groups on Twitter or during the campaign is not that important, doesn't really shape his opinion, but what the Colorado Commission in another right. case said, that's religious animus. So in right. some ways, people are stepping back and thinking, I'm not an expert, I don't know. Yeah. Do these judges just use their discretion and say, this qualifies as speech? And secondly, we all think this is speech, but I'm going to view it in this way or not in this way. Yeah. Here it weighs a lot and here it doesn't. So when you're saying it's um, a weaponized conception, that could be good could work on behalf of all of us, right? right? Could be thinking of strong, robust First Amendment is mm -hmm. what most people would like. They want their speech protected. We're speaking here. Yeah. Uh, we want that to be protected, sure. right? You, you're in, you're yeah. in the media quite a bit. You don't want that to be abridged in a way. Right. But you're also saying it could go in different directions because it's kind of abstract or empty enough to allow people to interpret it in different ways. Sure. And that's, I mean, and so to, to describe a little bit more fully the contrast that you were identifying. So in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, right, one of the reasons that the Supreme Court gives for finding that this baker's First Amendment rights were violated when he was compelled, essentially, to produce a wedding cake for this same-sex couple was that one of the commissioners on the Colorado Commission that's responsible for adjudicating these kinds of disputes made what the court believed were disparaging remarks about religion, essentially suggesting that religion has been used to justify, you know, well, horrendous things, yeah, right? uh, acts Colonization, genocide, et cetera. Exactly. The worst things in human history right. uh, caused by religion. Right? And I think there's a, there was a, a genuine dispute about you know, whether the commissioner meant to actually draw a parallel between the conduct in this case and, or simply to highlight quite distinct historical misuses of religion. Right. But regardless, that comment was a pretty central to the court's analysis. And so I think that when that opinion came down a few weeks ago, there was, you know, I thought, and I think a lot of other people also thought, that this potentially suggested that the court was willing to take a look at outside statements if the statements seemed to you know, evidence a degree of hostility toward religion because there was the question of whether the court would consider the president's statements uh, when th because those statements appeared to evidence hostility toward Islam to, in the travel to case. Think about the Supreme yeah. Court, do you think they're actually already seeing the next cases? Because, of course, all the cases, yeah. the dockets are moving across, so in some ways they're anticipating yeah. another case where this, this yeah. similar question comes up. Well, I mean, in this case, in, in terms of Masterpiece and the travel ban, they were these opinions were all being drafted around the same time. Yes. So they certainly... It can't have been lost on them. They that knew this case is on their desk already. It's on their <laughs> desk already. Like there are drafts <laughs> flying around, and that's basically in June. From the perspective of a former clerk, in June there are it is just fast and furious. There are drafts being circulated, dissents are being written, and majority opinions are being revised. So you have these kind of battling footnotes. So right. you have your draft, and then a draft dissent comes in, and then you make a bunch of revisions to your majority, either to you know strengthen some of your points right. or to respond explicitly to some of the other points. And so so all of that, the masterpiece and Trump versus Hawaii cases were absolutely in circulation. So I'm asking in my kind of layman's terms here. Sure. So in some ways, there's religious animus assumed in the Colorado Commission. Mm -hmm. And they are actually not just remanding the case, but actually overturning it. Mm -hmm. which they could have just sent it back and said, look at this again, and mm -hmm. you use religious animus, inappropriate, unconstitutional, you can't do that, mm -hmm. look at it again. Instead, mm -hmm. they said, we're going to overturn this. Mm -hmm. 
And then you're saying they're going to Trump versus Hawaii, where the question for the lay public is, do his statements, the president's statements, which is what you've been focusing on, does his speech have a weight that informs the executive orders in a way that actually shapes them? Or is it just he's speaking and he's tweeting and he has a big megaphone, as he should? Yeah, and he's sort of speaking in some different register when he's doing that in a way that shouldn't have consequences. It's political speech versus legally acceptable. Or speech with some kind of sort of legal significance, significance. right? And I think that when I started writing about this, I, I think I identified a genuine gap. Just it was something that hadn't really... Uh, courts hadn't really given much thought to it. You know, they still haven't, but they've obviously had a lot more occasion to think about it since the inauguration of President Trump, who's obviously provided a lot of material. You know, he speaks in a very different way, right, than any president uh, before him. Do you think there's a qualitative difference? I mean, in some ways, I've thought about this walking over here. Do you think he's the president who has the most resonance in terms of his speech at any president ever? Because even when you worked for Obama in the White House, he didn't have social and digital media in the same way as Donald Trump does, and he didn't use Twitter in the same way. So in some ways, is this not a powerful and good thing that the president can really reach every citizen hiding out in some corner of a forgotten you know, town that didn't really get the New York Times this morning, but they can hear him? You know, look, I don't think it's a, a problem at all, and I also don't think that the fact of using new technology to sort of directly reach the public is, you know, the medium is obviously new, but of course FDR's fireside chats, right, are sort of a classic early example of that. And to be honest, the percentage, and I haven't looked at this number recently, but the percentage of American households that had radios by the time that FDR was doing this regularly was significantly higher than the number of Americans on Twitter right now. But that's a little misleading because when he tweets, then it's all over the papers and the news. So the tweet itself is only a piece of it. Yeah. But no, I don't think the fact of... There's uh, no medium. It's not qualitative. I don't think it makes it qualitatively different. I do think that the content of the speech that he engages in using that medium and also just kind of more broadly is somewhat different. I mean, I do think it's true that the you know, arguably disparaging, clearly disparaging anti-Muslim comments that the president made during the campaign. I don't think there's a lot of dispute about the quality of those comments. I think even the Supreme Court majority in the Trump versus Hawaii case suggested. I mean, there's this moment I'm flipping through, actually, because I have a hard copy of the opinion I happen to have in my bag. Because you carry one hard copy of Trump versus Hawaii. And I'm, <laughs> I'm sure looking, you have Masterpiece Cake Shop as I well. I don't have Masterpiece <laughs> with me, but I do have Trump. But, I, but, but there's a moment where... Do they print those out and hand those out? They do, at the court. When, okay, if, you, if, you're, if you're physically there <laughs> during the hand down, which I was. Yeah, so basically, there's a moment when the Chief Justice acknowledges, he says, the President of the United States possesses an extraordinary power to speak to his fellow citizens and on their behalf. Our presidents have frequently used that power to espouse the principles of religious freedom and tolerance on which this nation was founded. And then he quotes George Washington giving some... Uplifting quotes. Uplifting, you know, (laughs) disavowing bigotry. You know, our nation gives bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance. But then he says it cannot be denied that the federal government and the presidents who have carried its laws into effect have performed unevenly in living up to those inspiring words. So he's almost suggesting that this president isn't so anomalous. I mean, it, this is all, of course, sort of, you know, right. subtextual. He's not explicitly saying anything about President right. Trump in this passage, but he does suggest that the history is uneven. And of course, that's true. And I mean, look, you have Korematsu kind of squarely at issue in this case. And yet, I think there is something somewhat different about, um, it's just not in our tradition to disparage groups on the basis of religion can, or anything else. It's certainly I, not in the you, modern tradition. Something about yeah. this, this kind of the speech that you're analyzing, there's political speech and this speech has some kind of legal significance or weight, you said? So this is what people are looking at. Does this speech have yeah. legal weight in how we are evaluating yeah. these kind of executive orders right, right now? Charges have been brought against them that they're religiously motivated or they have a kind of bias or something written yeah. that's not constitutional. Yeah. 
But then there is a the kind of moral leadership question of what right. this president is saying, right. because as the just this is Justice that's Chief Justice Roberts Roberts yeah. saying yeah. to the citizens and on behalf of us. Right. So in some ways, what I think is interesting and why I'm quite interested in what you're saying is because I've been thinking a lot about the universities where this moral leadership question comes in when the leader actually uses terms and says all sorts of things and doesn't uphold even unevenly, as Robert says, yeah. doesn't uphold this principle that we actually are a nation that is tolerant and doesn't you know, proclaim bigotry. Yeah. But the nation's highest office doesn't do that. Then there's something happening, and because now it seems to be kind of open season. You can say anything. Yeah. The president says it, I can right. say it, right? And right. so it goes, it's, it's quite a powerful yeah. thing that's happening. I mean, I don't know causally if he's drawing on something that is also being drawn on by others or if in fact there is this mirroring of behavior that we're seeing. So I don't, I really don't know kind of about sort of what the causal mechanism, if there is one, looks like. But I do think, you know, and, and I don't want to keep reading from this opinion, but the Kennedy concurrence, so he writes, and this of course was issued Tuesday and Justice Kennedy then announced his retirement on Wednesday. So kind of what this means in terms of he's not going to be around to enforce this and this is clearly a concurrence and this is not, you know, what exactly it means for the next case that arises, I think is not entirely clear, but he sort of takes aim at the language, uh, the president's language in this concurring opinion. It's a page and a half long. Basically, the way I read it is he is saying, we're not gonna invalidate the travel ban here. And you know, this is a case in which it's not totally clear that a court can even kind of intervene. The case gets sent back and there's this open question about whether judicial proceedings can properly continue because it had been a preliminary injunction, right? The court reverses that. So in theory, the case can continue, it may, it may well. Um, and he's kind of agnostic about what a lower court should even do. He says, in light of the substantial deference that is and must be accorded to the executive in the conduct of foreign affairs. But then he says, in all events, it's appropriate to make this further observation. And he says, there are numerous instances in which the statements and actions of government officials are not subject to judicial scrutiny or intervention. That does not mean those officials are free to disregard the Constitution and the rights it proclaims and protects. And then he says, the oath that all officials take to adhere to the Constitution is not confined to those spheres in which the judiciary can correct or even comment upon what those officials say or do. And then he kind of goes on to say, it's an urgent necessity that officials adhere to these constitutional guarantees and mandates in all their actions, even in the sphere of foreign affairs, you know. So he is not saying anything, but this is clearly written for an audience of one, right? He is, he's talking to President Trump and he's basically saying, courts may not be able to do anything about the nature of your rhetoric, but you yourself have an independent obligation to the Constitution, and I can kind of remind you of that. And it matters for us at home, and actually it matters abroad, right? He says, an anxious world must know that our government remains committed to the liberties the Constitution seeks to preserve and protect. And so he is sort of, again, there's a lot packed into this page and a half, and it's an unusual concurring opinion, I think. And, you know, I think a lot of people sort of rolled their eyes and said, well, if you really want to constrain the president, invalidate his, his order. <laughs> this concurrence is not actually that helpful because it has no force. But isn't he saying something also which is quite critical at this time in our country? Isn't he saying the court can go so far? This is a little bit outside of what the court can actually regulate yep. or actually weigh in on. We, yeah. can, we can offer advice to yeah. say the president ought to do two right. things, uphold the oath, Right. that he swore in the Constitution, that is clear, but yeah. also just behave in a way that is in accordance with those values. Yeah. But we can't really step into that space. Right. Is that because it's a foreign policy issue and the executive has a lot of leeway, or more leeway yeah. there, they can't just regulate that right away? I would say the answer to that is complicated, but basically, yes, it's, there's just a lot more deference given and a lot less active judicial intervention when we're talking about national security, foreign affairs, the regulation of immigration, particularly when we're talking which about is, entry into the United which States. Which is why they bring up Korematsu, yeah. which 
you know, Karen Korematsu today in the New York Times, the daughter in the Fred Korematsu Foundation, yeah. she yeah. said, you know, her father would be outraged that his right. name is even used, that now they're overturning it. Yeah. And in 1983, I think, the federal court vacated yeah. the ruling, exactly. so they never overturned it. So right. we never overturned it. We interned our own citizens in yeah. camps in the 40s. Right. So now they're invoking this case, but they're saying we cannot go into this space. Right. Are they actually, let's say, if we didn't think Trump was a president, we think that's appropriate. Yeah. The court should not actually intervene. This division, this separation of powers yeah. is what this country is based on. I mean, I, think, I would say a few things. One, I don't think the court really says this yeah. is off. Well, I, don't, I don't, actually don't think they're saying this is totally off limits. I actually think they, I wrote a little something about this, but I don't think they're saying, I think they do a closer review of this proclamation than they would typically do in a case like this. And I think it is because, for, two, for a couple of reasons. One, I think as a threshold matter, the majority spend some time describing these statements the Muslim ban promise, like that is written into this opinion, which was, you know, during the oral arguments in the case, it was all this kind of very sort of indirection. They sort of talked about the statements without actually, no one in the courtroom right. really said the things that the president said. They kind of the, talked around The them. way people talk about offensive speech, exactly. they don't say what it they really don't say, is. Yeah. They, and they mostly talked about a hypothetical. So Justice Kagan posed a hypothetical with a president, she said it was a virulent anti-Semite, and he says all these disparaging things, and then he says, I want to, you know, institute a ban that that's only applicable to citizens of Israel, help me do it. And, and so they talked around that hypothetical without actually talking specifically about this president's comments. And then at the end of it, Justice Kagan, who's this like amazing questioner, said, well, I guess what I'm asking is, is everything the president said basically that, you know? And so the Solicitor General who's up there defending the proclamation, he made an important concession, which is if the president had basically said to his cabinet, find me a way to keep Jews out or to keep Israeli citizens out, then it would be appropriate for the court to scrutinize a little more closely what the government had done than it typically does in a case involving an asserted national security or for a foreign affairs justification. And because of that concession, the court sort of said, you know, here we can as essentially assume that these statements might be relevant in kind of moving us from this very deferential review where if you mm -hmm. just give us mm -hmm. a facially valid reason that's the end of our inquiry. We don't go beyond the kind of four corners of So they're actually going a bit further. They go and a bit further. Not what I said. They're actually saying you're saying they're looking at it. They, they look. At this. They ask about. They sort of say, okay, let's look at the proclamation and let's read the reasons that are given. And then you know the proclamation says, look, there's there are vetting deficiencies, information sharing gaps. That's why these countries are included. The fact that. Chad, for example, was originally included on this proclamation and then removed from the list. The fact that there are, you know, waiver provisions and uh, allowances made for non-immigrant visas. And so the court does something that involves a more genuine review of the justification that is given to explain this proclamation than it would typically do right. in, a, in if it's really talking about this very deferential type of review. And so the, the statements, I think, are why, because the statements sort of give the court this kind of threshold reason to probe a little further, but then when it comes to the probing, then the court doesn't really examine the statements, and arguably it should have done so, not just in kind of establishing the standard of review, but actually in evaluating the justifications. Interesting. I want yeah. to go to this, the moral question of what this speech and what, what this does for our democracy and our nation. The political theorist Judith Klar once wrote that the SCOTUS decisions inform our behavior and guide our thinking, but shouldn't overdetermine it in all cases, of mm -hmm. course, because yeah. we, like, and Sonia Sotomayor said, Korematsu is, in my words, a disgrace, mm -hmm. not in her words, mm -hmm. and we are committing something akin to this, or like yep, Plessy versus Ferguson, one of those bad cases of the kind of anti-canonical law. That are these cases which just sit there, but now the sort of the lay people are saying, is this supposed to determine our thinking? So you're, you know, 
a law professor and a commentator on the court and you participate in the court, when you step out of it, how is the public supposed to look at it? Are we supposed to read Sonia Sotomayor and say, oh, well, thank God there was a voice of sanity from my personal perspective, right. or she's completely out of line, they did the right thing here, this is a great thing for yeah. national security. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't answer how the public should read. read. I, you know, obviously there's, there's a divide in the court. I mean, one thing I thought was interesting was that it's only Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg who you know, seem to believe that Justice Sotomayor accurately captures the kind of nature of the wrong. Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan write separately, and I, and I couldn't quite figure out why. I'm not sure wh whether it was tactical or not, but they, you know, they write separately. It's a Breyer opinion, but he writes separately essentially to identify these shortcomings in this visa waiver process as opposed to really taking aim at this kind of, um, you know, sort of epic in the kind of we'll go down in the annals of history, right, in terms of kind of right. historic injustices right. that the court has has sanctioned, right? It's, right? it sort of feels like that's what Justice Sotomayor is suggesting happened yesterday. And is it Tuesday? Yeah, yeah Tuesday. Yeah, this Tuesday, is right. just, this is this been a long week. Just, yeah, but, yeah. It, but we feel already, but she actually did what you just said. She said, this is a, a decision of such historic proportions yeah. that we will live with this for decades. Yeah. And we will look back at it and we yeah. will think it's wrong as a nation. And it's somewhat interesting, yeah. the nation has to come back together in these opinions, which yeah. are often divided or yeah. not unanimous, but even they are, and then we come together and say this is actually what we all agree on. Well, what I would want to know, and this is something that to the extent you're talking to people about all of this, would be useful, is how, I would say particularly Muslim Americans received this opinion. And I don't know, because we, I've been in D.C. in this kind of Supreme Court bubble, I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, so Justice Sotomayor, I think that there are people who sort of read what the court did as essentially saying, you know, this was a proclamation that was meant to stamp a badge of inferiority, and the court approved that, and that's, and that's, that's a hard that's exactly thing to stomach. Right. So the people I've talked to have said, and this is really just paraphrasing, they said, this enshrines inequality in mm -hmm. our law. And they say this is the worst thing that could ever have happened, right. and they say several of these last decisions, they say this actually enshrines inequality in Supreme Court decisions, which is something that hasn't happened in a while, and we actually, some of us were, to think that inequality yeah. is actually something we've overcome. And they right. say, this is actually such a catastrophic development that yeah. now inequality is enshrined in law. So what you're saying, I think yeah. people have responded in this way yeah. and said, what do we do next? And the other thing is, now they are also worried that people feel, as you said, you can't determine this, whether people feel emboldened or actually, you know, at least President Trump should feel today, I'm unrestrained. I can say whatever I want. Right. The justice is more or less said. I mean, I'm not sure he's carrying around the decision in his bag today right. and reading right. it very carefully and right. parsing it. He's probably thinking, so I can say these things. Yeah. It's okay. I'm talking to my potential voters and my fan base and... This is not something that I have to really worry about so much legally. Yeah. So you were in the White House. Yeah. Was your role at some point to say to President Obama, you shouldn't be saying these things? And I know you've talked yeah. about examples where he yeah. said something during a campaign stop about DACA or yeah. da DAPA. DAPA, yeah. DAPA and so is there, is there a way that he should be surrounded by some people to give him some guidance and advice on how to use I his Twitter? I think he's probably a very <laughs> difficult client for the lawyers around him. I, I really do. Uh, you know, no. I, so, so to answer your first question, there are big speeches like the State of the Union that are carefully reviewed by everyone who works on policy, and, and a lot of lawyers' eyes are on those kinds of remarks. And then I would say there's kind of, in terms of the rigorousness of the process, I think it, it really ranges from White House to White House, and even in a particular White House, depending on the degree of formality. I mean, the president does a lot of just extemporaneous speaking, so you just can't prevent the remarks right. that will right. come out of his mouth if right. he's getting questions. Or, right. I mean, you can talk about some right. of the general you know, messages he's going to convey, but 
you know, you can't line edit. And yet it was not. President Obama was very careful. And I do think that he was tripped up, I argue, pretty unfairly in some of the remarks that he made about the DAPA program, which were sort of used pretty heavily in a district court opinion in Texas that invalidated and then was affirmed by the Fifth Circuit and never decided by the Supreme Court, but that invalidated this important And that goes program. back because he referred to it as an entitlement, and that's the, is he, that the one of what, the phrases yeah, that made he, a He basically a says, he, he conveyed the idea, at least in the, in the eyes of this district court, that it was an entitlement. He said something like, he said a few things, but the thing that the court seemed to put the most stock in was that he said, I, I just took action to change the law. And just as a matter of kind of administrative law, if you're going to change the law, there's a process you're supposed right. to go through, which is notice if you're an agency, and this was an agency that, that, that did this, it was the Department of Homeland Security, and it basically, the secretary just issued a memo saying this is now our policy, didn't go through what's called notice and comment rulemaking, where you put out a proposal and the public comments, and, and then there's, you know, there's some sort of procedural requirements. Because that didn't happen, what the secretary issued was just being described internally as policy guidance that still gave field agents discretion to grant or deny particular applications for DAPA. The challengers, Texas and a whole bunch of other states, argued and the judge accepted that this comment, I just took action to change the law, showed that this was this is a law. You know, this is you know an agency can't pass a law, but it does issue what are called rules. I, that I are can't called, help but noticing yeah. that we had a constitutional lawyer in the president's office, in the Oval Office, who misspoke possibly and then was kind of held up on procedure and say didn't go through vetting and, you know, notice public notice and comment. Correct. Now we have somebody who actually occasionally comes pretty close to saying, I will not just change the law, I will make the law, I need deference, I right. need respect, right. I will treat people with disdain. So in some ways we're really living in a quite different era. <laughs> yes, I think that hard to envision too more different kinds of chief executives that's than, right. yeah, that's than, right. than, than President Obama. I'm going to ask you something very different. How do you go through your day actually listening to all of this? I've talked to a lot of people who actually, I've talked to some students who are really taking action, very courageous, I think, actually also taking positions that are not really popular mm -hmm. in, in situations where they're students with their institutions, sometimes against their own institutions. Mm -hmm. But some people are also feeling very disheartened and feeling mm -hmm. kind of disillusioned mm -hmm. and feeling we're being manipulated to listen to President Trump all the time. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of hesitation to go so deeply into these matters and keep your wits about you mm -hmm. to actually form your own opinion. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I feel like I'm now kind of studying presidential speech, so I have an obligation, I think, kind of professionally right. to sort of yeah. to keep abreast of it. I think actually across the ideological spectrum, there is fatigue just with what feels like the kind of pace and volume of the news cycle and kind of the stakes of some of these disputes. And so I think that that's in some ways that, and I hear this from my students as well, which is like, I can't concentrate. I am so right. distracted. And partly because the learning curve is also high. And some of you saying the stakes are high, but people who are just going about their day yeah are suddenly thinking, are these decisions going to impact me? Right. Are they going to affect me? Are they going to affect my friends? So it's actually, it's becoming very real for people, yeah. maybe. There was a level of abstraction in politics in a way, also a level of remove and disenchantment, surely. Yeah. And now people are saying, do I have to pay attention because right. it'll impact my life? Or am I being kind of manipulated to pay attention all the time? Yeah. Well, and I don't know the answer to that, but I do think that one potential silver lining is that if young people are really feeling engaged even if upset or frustrated or angry, they're not apathetic. And that strikes me as potentially a salutary development. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't speak for the mental health of all the students, and for some I'm sure right. it is not, but I do think that an engaged 
you know, sort of younger end of the electorate is right. a really, really important thing. So to that extent, I think there's some positive, there's something positive there. To go back to a much earlier comment you made, you said there's a kind of conception, a weaponized conception of free speech. Yeah. I've talked to a couple students and I've had this impression myself that it's weaponized sometimes in only one direction. Right. And in some ways, what you just said about the next generation, however, they can also take this back. So we see the parkland survivors who, unimaginable actually teenagers who survive that their classmates are shot in front of them and now they've actually turned this into a movement or it's trying to in some ways I think that is to come out of trauma and actually speak right away is a complicated thing especially when you're younger or at any age but do you think um, that, that people could then say let's counter this weaponization but let's not give up on free speech I'm now trying to pull up another opinion which is this I, I'm sure you saw it but the the end of Justice Kagan's dissent in the Janus opinion. And this is the uh, federal, uh, the employees who are yeah, paying exactly. agency fees or union dues to a union they don't belong to. So right. the government and said, we can compel you to participate in saying this, which goes against your interests. Exactly. So this is a First Amendment challenge by you know individuals who didn't want to be in the union and didn't have to be in the union in terms of the kind of political activities of the union, but were required under state law in Illinois and a bunch of other states to pay these fees and argue that that violated their First Amendment rights. And he or she even says the majority has chosen the winners. So it, there's this dispute, you know, just kind of about how you know, she sort of has look. Some states have these schemes in effect that say, look, we think having strong well-funded public sector unions is good for the state governments, right, as well as the kind of workers. It's good for them to have a, you know, organized counterparty to negotiate with. And so they've passed these laws that allow these agency fees to be charged by unions, and lots of states don't have these laws. And that's a healthy democratic debate, but the court freezes it by finding that the First Amendment takes that option off the table entirely. So, so she says the majority has chosen the winners by turning the First Amendment into a sword. And then she says, you know, it's not the first time that the, the court has wielded the First Amendment in such an aggressive way. And she cites the decision invalidating the, the California law requiring these crisis pregnancy centers to post notices. Um, but there's lots of other examples she could have um, cited there. But so what she says is speech is everywhere, a part of every human activity. For that reason, almost all economic and regulatory policy affects or touches speech. So the majority's road runs long, and at every stop are black-robed rulers overriding citizens' choices. So this is obviously like, she's she's alarmed and she is sounding the alarm about the possibility that the First Amendment could be used in this massive deregulatory fashion. You know, and I think there's language in the majority opinion that have made people very nervous about First Amendment challenges to unions writ large, not just to these public sector unions. That's not this case at all, but that is not inconceivable as a next case. You know, so you have all of this kind of use of the First Amendment, and I think that raising Parkland is a really is wonderful. I don't, I don't know how self-consciously these students are making claims on the Constitution. I think they are a little bit. I remember one of Emma Gonzalez's speeches referenced Tinker, right? This sort of first, this case, right? right. That finds, and I haven't read it in a which long time, but it's you, the armband. Politics, you leave them at the door to the classroom, you right. can wear an armband, which protests. Exactly, Is Vietnam it the, War. Vietnam it was, it was War, and you're allowed to do that in your classroom. Exactly, right? and it's an, one of these important cases that sort of says students don't forfeit all First Amendment right. rights by entering into, say, public you know, right. institutions, high schools, things like that. The Constitution doesn't apply in the same full way in schools because the nature of disciplinary needs and those kinds of things are such that, you know, the scene is just a little bit different. But the, the First Amendment still applies in within those halls, and it's an important case in that regard. And so she did cite it. And to be honest, the Parkland students, I think it could be very constructive for them to make kind of self-consciously constitutional claims, and both about the First and the Second Amendment, I actually. I think this is what actually yeah. they're saying. They're saying the Second Amendment is weaponized in a way to, uh, to which has been expanded over the last 50 years and say to allow people all sorts of weapons in their homes and in their, as private citizens. And then the First Amendment seems to be curtailed when we are told you cannot speak up. Right. And 
there's two, there's, a, there's not a legal challenge, you haven't been sued, but people have basically demeaned and dismissed them and said, you're too young, right. you're not political actors, right. you have no right, you're a crisis actors, etc. So they're saying the Second Amendment is used against us yeah. and the First Amendment is also used against us. So yeah. if you have an absolutist understanding, yeah. if you're a Second Amendment absolutist, you should be a First Amendment absolutist and you should let me speak wherever I want to yeah. speak. Yeah. And in some ways what we're seeing instead, I think the students are responding very strongly to saying, why is this speech being regulated so much? Why is student speech regulated? And why do people move into this? One of my favorite cases is actually, I love this, the bong hit for Jesus case, which is a high school student who puts a, a bed sheet out and he puts on a duct tape. It's actually at the museum in Washington, D.C. They have the bed sheet on the wall. Oh, wow. And they actually refer to it really quietly because the justices ruled that actually it's not, a, it's not permissible for a student to put a sign bong hits for Jesus outside of a school. It mm -hmm. was outside of the school mm -hmm. because of political speech on school grounds, although he wasn't on the school. Right. And I always love this case because I think, wait, there the First Amendment regulates speech directly because supposedly it promotes illegal behavior. Right. And I thought, why isn't this the celebrated case? And instead, the celebrated cases are we're defending the Klan or mm. we're defending, you know, sort of basically ultra racist. And I'm always interested where these conversations yeah. take place. Yeah. Well, in that case, and we, I also think of it as the bong hits for Jesus case, but Morse versus Frederick, I think, is actually the case name. But there's a oh, wonderful, yeah. <laughs> there's a wonderful separate writing, and I now can't remember if it's a concurrence or I think it's a dissent um, by Justice Stevens, my former boss, in which he compares the current debate around marijuana policy to prohibition, which oh, he lived through, you know? He lived through prohibition as a young yeah, man in this yeah. country and sort of and sort of said, you know, the policy debates remind me in certain respects. Right. And so, you know, this actually is an issue of real importance and, you know, the student sort of should be allowed to, I mean, I'm not sure I understand even the content of the message, Bong Hits for Jesus, I'm not sure anyone really does, I, but whatever, you right. know, so there's an argument that he was attempting <laughs> to spin something right. somewhat, you know, either opaque or, or sarcastic or something into something more political. But yeah, I mean, I think that the point is that, that there is, something to the observation that we are seeing the first amendment we always think of as having kind of its strongest and sort of most urgent application when we're talking about core political speech and yet the court is at least in the in, in this term enforcing it much more vigorously in every other sphere right. you know and now to you know the point you started with the citizens united justice kennedy the author of that opinion would say that is political speech and we are you know and that's where he says you know the first amendment has its most urgent application in campaigns for office and you know he uses that language but it is still as justice Stevens says in his dissent in citizens united money does facilitate speech but it is wrong it is a category error to say that money is speech right you know there are things that humans do that money well, does not do we vote this is vote. quite interesting. Yeah. That's what I mean. That you brought out Elena Kagan at the end. That Justice Kagan writes and said it is used as a sword. Yeah. And then the question is, if black-robed people stand mm -hmm. along the way on this long road, you know, you just want them to use it for good. Yeah. The big question I think the students are bringing up: yeah. whose good is it, yeah. and is it going to yeah. be used for good? So yeah. I, the la and the last line she says, right? Not the last line. Yeah. But the last line I wanted to read to you: the First Amendment was meant for better things, because that yeah. does seem to be what she is suggesting. It's not that the First Amendment isn't implicated in these disputes, but it is incorrect to suggest that this is the primary concern of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it's a really important dissent. You know, it highlights all the themes that we've been talking right. about. I really appreciate your reading from the court's opinions because in some ways also the kind of strength 
and the force and elegance of that language, yeah. which is which is lasting and so important, it sort of also contrasts with the other speech we've been talking about in a way. And yeah. so I really want to thank you, Kate Shaw. Uh, again, thank you for taking the time. With Cardozo, we're sitting here actually. <laughs> you know, one of your children is in the room. He's been um, he's been very <laughs> he's quiet. Been, he's been respectful <laughs> of the rules of the game. That's exactly, right. very quiet, as if, right. as if he's in the Supreme Court himself. So That's I right. really thank you so much for taking the time to joining the podcast today, and I hope we'll get to speak again. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Kate. Thank you.